Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. In the beginning, God made everything and it was good. Our fellowship with Him was very good. But our rebellion shattered every relationship. Our sin brought the curse of death. We can see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Our world is broken. We long for our redemption. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our world. He lived and died and rose again before returning to his Father's right hand. Soon, Jesus will return. Every eye will see Him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain for sinners who overcame, and He will make all things new. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. Every time I see that video, I get excited again, all over again, to preach this message. Go in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. If you bring this up just a little bit, my voice is a little bit weak today. There are so many events that are taking place in our world on the global stage. And we're going to talk about this church at Ephesus. This is the the first church that comes into view. And I want to ask us as a church, as a congregation, this question, how do people around us view the church? We'll talk about this in our small groups. If you were to just interview people that are on the street, all right, your neighbors, your non-believing neighbors, your non-believing co-workers, you just pass somebody on the street and you were to ask them the question, what do you think about the church? What is your view of the church? What would they say? What makes Christians, all right, what makes Christians, followers of Christ, different or unique from non-believers? And I would argue that genuine Christians, what is different about them is they show forgiveness, They work out conflict. They don't run from relationship, but they press into relationships and they show forgiveness rather than holding on to bitterness. What exactly is a Christian? We would define a Christian as a person who has believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've repented of their sins and they have confessed Christ as Lord and their lives bear the fruit of righteousness. It's an ongoing reality that they belong to Christ. And that is what makes them a follower or a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciple is a learner. 
A learner means you're taking your cues from a leader. You're watching them, you're emulating them, though you know you cannot be them. What does my leader say? What does my Lord do? What does he expect from me? And then you're in cue. So if you've ever been in an orchestra or in a band and you have a leader, everybody's eye is on that leader so that it's a a song of praise, a symphony of praise, rather than all discombobulated and doesn't make any sense. A Christian is a person who has come spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit to love God, to love Christ, to love the Word of God, and to love the church, the people of God. They're brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that they engage in serving Christ by serving one another, not just taking from, not just consuming. And those believers have a heart for those that are not yet converted. This is how we would define a Christian. They're on mission. So let me ask us again then, what do people know and what do people say about this church, about you, about me, about us together. What does Christ say about us as a church? So we can have an opinion of ourselves, okay. Our community can have an opinion of ourselves, of us, okay. But what ultimately matters is what does Jesus say about us? That's what matters in time and eternity. Perhaps you are riding the fence today. You're here and you have yet to go all in for Christ. You may have respect for Jesus. You may think Jesus is wonderful and love the things about Jesus and love attending, but you haven't yet crossed the line and said, I surrender everything to the King of kings and Lord of lords. What is holding you back? And I would encourage you with everything in me to not leave this service today without dealing with whatever the sin is that is holding you back from going all in that everyone knows Jesus is my Lord and my King and my Master. So I'm praying that God will give you by His Spirit ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you 
and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God. Now this morning, I just want to put up a timeline as we, as we talk about this church in Ephesus, all right, the Ephesian church and the Lord's word to him. A timeline will come up on the screen and where we are now in these chapters, chapters one, chapter two, and chapter three is where the church is on earth. And then we're going to see in the course of our study, the next event is there will be the rapture of the church. And something changes between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And that we will reference other scriptures and we'll walk through this. And then the church is missing from the pages of Revelation, if it'll come on the screen, while the church is in heaven. And there are all these events. There's the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this happens through Revelation 4 and 5. Um, a 19, 1 to 10, we see that. And all the while, down on earth is the great tribulation. That's chapters 6 through 18. And then we'll see the return of Christ. He returns, and then there's the millennial kingdom, the final judgment and rebellion, and then the eternal state. And so in just a snapshot, all right, there, there's not going to be a pop quiz on this, all right, but I just want to give you an overview of what we'll be studying when Jesus gave in the last chapter, in chapter uh, 1 and 19, and he says, uh, let's see, I'm looking at it right here if I can find it, uh, right there for the things you have seen, past tense, those that are, present tense, that's 1, 2, and 3, and of those that are to take place after that, 4 to the end of Revelation. That just gives an overview of where we're at, and we're in this first little box down here. Revelation is the church on earth, and so we see this letter, and this letter is given, and so we'll see this happen in each of the seven letters. The, the, it'll come on the screen, introduction. Okay, this is an introduction to a letter. You'll see an introduction, you'll see a message, and then you'll see a conclusion that Jesus gives to each church. But every church would hear the message given to the other churches. So they would, this, this would be read, and it's already been said, takes about an hour and 20 to read the entire wrap-up of human history, redemptive history. God did it in shorter time than Tolkien can do it in one movie or a trilogy, a, two sets of a trilogy, okay? So in an hour and 20, a church would hear the letter to all seven churches and how human history will wrap up. And they would leave, not just focusing on one negative part or a beast here or a trumpet there, but the whole wrap-up of human history. So let's dig into this church that was this, this letter that was written to the church at Ephesus. Uh, it's two, and we see this in, our, in the opening, to the pastor and the people of the church at Ephesus. Here we see that the letter is written to the messenger or the angel. It's one who brings tidings. And, and so we just talked about it a couple weeks ago. There's a blessing to the one who reads aloud. There's a caution to the one who reads aloud the word of God. And it's all in the context of the church gathering. You're about to read aloud Revelation in the gathering of the church. Do it well. You know, don't, don't 
miss words and put words in that weren't there. That was my trouble as a kid. I had trouble. I got bad grades because I put words in that weren't there and I left words out. That, it was just bad reading that led to you're not going to come up with the right answer. The messenger is the pastor. This message is for each leader of the church. There's a responsibility for specific leaders along with the elders to carry out the mission. So understand, it's like a baton. This letter is given and somebody is expected to do something with the message. This is not just, oh, that's a nice message. You know, where's my little placard I'll give the pastor? You know, that was a seven today. That was a four today. No, this is a message that everybody's hearing. This is what your messenger the one who stands and delivers the word of God, he is expected by Christ to carry this out in the body of believers. In the Ephesian church, they had some of the best leaders. Founded possibly after Paul visited in Acts 19. Paul was a leader there. Timothy was a leader there. The apostle John himself was a leader there. And so the Lord is in control. And if you look there, in the, in, there's, a, there's something that has changed, okay? We're going to see the description in each of the seven letters that's going to come from chapter 1. This time, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, it's a little different. It's a grasping of them. Chapter 1, the stars are in his hand. Now it's amplified that he holds them. He is sovereignly grasping the leaders in those churches. In other words, they're mine, and you can't pry them out of my hands. It's a stronger term. He's sovereign over them. And then there's the believers in the church, the ecclesia. It means called out ones. They're, they're ones who have been separated. And so they're separated ones in the city of Ephesus. There will be a picture come up on the screen of a library there in Ephesus. So here is this once amazing city, bustling with life. They would have thought, no one will ever take our place of significance. We're amazing. At the time of this letter, Ephesus was a major city in Asia Minor. It's southwest corner of modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a seaport and the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Population of about a quarter of a million people. A Roman outpost. They had a port, but they had a problem in their port, and that is they never got enough, they didn't get strong enough waves to flush out the silt. And so it would gather, if you've ever been to a, an area that just collects all the junk, from the, the body of water, and you can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of the logs, the silt. And they didn't have the technology to clear it out, and so it would always become just ruined. And they dealt with that. Ephesus boasted in having the great temple of Artemis. There's a photo that'll come up of this. this uh, another name is Diana. Now, we see this in Acts 19. This temple, now in ruins, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The shrine to Artemis ranked in, it raked in a lucrative business from travelers who would come there and pay homage and devotion to Diana. 
Ephesus was at a crossroads of civilization. I can't talk this morning. Civilization. There's a photo that will come up of the Agora. Three great highways converged in Ephesus. From the north, from the east, and from the south. Some have called it the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. Politically, it had become a de facto capital of the province. It was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. The Roman Empire put a governor there. And that governor resided there, so it was known as a free or a self-governed city. And now, it's in ruins. There's theaters there, libraries, public squares. There's even a gymnasium, a bathhouse. Paul visited there about AD 53, some 43 years before this letter, Revelation, was sent to them. Paul remained there in Ephesus for several years. He preached the gospel so effectively that all Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And it makes me wonder if he didn't gather in a place like this odium, this outdoor stadium, if Paul didn't have an opportunity with people gathered to preach the gospel right there. Somehow everybody in Asia Minor heard the gospel and this one man, changed by Christ, who was once the number one enemy of the church, became the number one missionary of the church, and everybody in Asia Minor heard they were impacted by the gospel. Well, that resulted in riots because people began to repent, and so the whole industry that was devoted to the worship of Artemis or Diana was threatened. There's another view from another angle of that great theater. Just imagine people saying, we're hearing something of a guy who used to be a Pharisee in Judaism. Now he's a follower of the way. He, he met Jesus. The word is, and he's going to be speaking. Wherever he spoke, people gathered significantly enough that everywhere in Asia Minor, they heard and understood. They knew what the gospel was. Paul, on his last journey to Jerusalem, in Acts 20, he met with, he called for the Ephesian elders, the guys who lived there. And he said, meet me. And in Acts 20, they knew this was going to be the last time they would ever see their beloved church planter. And they wept together. And he went on to Jerusalem, and he would be taken on to Rome and beheaded in Rome. This city was in the grasp of idolatry. Idolatry was everywhere in this city. The temple for the, so the Romans called the goddess Diana. The Greek name is Artemis. She was a goddess, they believed, of fertility. So you can kind of see, even on her body, some indecent multiplication of body features that was all entailed in this worship. Human perverse sexuality. It's said that there were thousands of priests and priestesses involved in her service. Many of the priestesses were dedicated to cult prostitution. That may be connected to what we just read in verse 6 with the Nicolaitans, this mixture of sexuality and perversion, but it's worship. 
So therefore, it's blessed, and I'm getting closer to the gods by engaging in immorality. That's the Ephesian church in the middle of this kind of an environment. The assessment of one of Ephesus' own philosophers, Heraclitus, he said this way. He was known as the weeping philosopher. He said that the inhabitants of Ephesus were, and this is a quote, fit only to be drowned. And that's the reason why he could never laugh or smile because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. That was one of their own. And as he looked around, he saw everywhere in the city perversion. Sounds a little bit like the Corinthians, that environment in Corinth. So that's who the letter is written to. That's, that's, we're going back over time. We're going back over culture. And this was, a, this was a group of people who lived in a bustling center of the Roman Empire. They would have thought nothing will ever take our place. We are backed up by Rome. Who's the letter from? It's from Jesus, our great high priest. And Jesus references back to here the description that John has already given in chapter 1. And we'll see how unique and meaningful it is in each of these addresses where Jesus relates to the seven churches and we see Jesus is sovereign over his church. Chapter 1, 16, he holds the seven stars, the those messengers, I believe he's speaking of the pastors there in his right hand, the one who brings the word. He's sovereign over his church and he is present within his church. He's the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Those seven churches. And remember, his feet are like bronze to stamp out the sin that is in his church. And so that's the introduction that Jesus, he holds those pastors, he's present within the church, and he knows them. That's the introduction. And then we get to the message. The message, and it will be similar, this format will be similar in each of the seven letters. First of all, to this church, and it won't be for every church, we see praise from the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus knows their works, and so he begins with affirmation. He begins with commending them. He says, I know your works. I commend you for your works. Ephesus was a serving church. They were busy doing the work of the Lord. But loved ones, being and doing are two different things. Being busy is not necessarily being holy. I made an appeal for members to engage in ministry, but it's not necessarily holy if a member is simply engaged in all of the ministry busy doing and doing and doing and doing. To some degree, that enables other members to not take their place and engage in the ministry and have sometimes difficult conversations with people. I'm on the membership role, but where is your fingerprint in the ministry? Where are you engaged in the family of God? Here. So Jesus is saying to this church, I commend you. I know your works, your diligent labor. We see the word toil. This is toil to the point of exhaustion. This is not just, yeah, I came, I showed up, I punched in and I punched out. Anybody ever worked with someone like that? They're like, just go home already. 
you're just sitting over there, sitting and sitting some more. And we're paying you. Get out of here already. You're in my way. How about you help? They labored to the point of exhaustion. At this point, the church is about 40 years old. Here we are, founded in 1962, over 60 years old. They're about 40 years old. Just to give you some thought, these were people hearing a letter read in Ephesus, first city stop on the seven mail route, and they know everybody's going to be hearing this. So, so far, like, whoa, that's right. I know your works. Your diligent labor. That's right. We work hard. Your patient endurance. Your patient continuance. You held up under trials. You didn't lose your footing. You didn't even grow weary. You didn't lose your fortitude for the name of Christ. And in the Ephesian church right now, they're thinking, yes, that's right. Come on. We're fighting. That's what we do. We fight. And Jesus says, you have a commitment that I love to purity and to doctrine, to the truth. You're separated. He says, you refuse to tolerate evil. We don't put up with it. They were immersed, as we have seen, in a hyper-sexualized culture. A demonic culture was blended with temples and religion And sexuality in the Ephesian believers, they held the line of separation. They stood firm against the practices of magic and witchcraft that was prevalent in Ephesus. This was a wild city. Paul even says that when I was in Ephesus, I I fought with wild beasts. And we actually don't know, were they really beasts? Or was he talking about the people? If you go in your Bibles, back to Acts 19, we're just going to read a section of this, but I want you to have the reference from Acts 19 and 20, and you can even follow that up later in your own just reading to get the background of this church. I'm just going to pick up in verse 11 and read through verse 20. And God, Luke records here in Acts, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, here's what the imposters were saying, okay. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, here's an example that they all knew. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them. This is so humorous. I I just, I crack up seeing this. The evil spirit has a conversation with them. He says, now, mm, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, Sceva's seven sons, and overpowered them so that his boys fled out of the house. Where's my clothes? The guy with the demon just derobed us naked and wounded. Okay, so everybody's watching this scene unfold. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, 
and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That happened in Ephesus. We go back to Revelation and we see the Lord commending them because they were committed to purity. They were committed to doctrine. And this is what they did. They, they tested the teachers. They tested people who came and said, oh, I'm an apostle. Yeah, we heard about, you ever heard about Sceva? Yeah, we, he said some things too. And then we saw what happened and we didn't, he didn't ring true. The Gnosticism was there, which is a religious movement that was all throughout. John dealt with them. They claimed to have a secret knowledge. We have, we have the next level that God talks to me, and you don't have this knowledge? Well, through me, I can help you acquire this knowledge. Sounds like Scientology. Sign up, and on Tuesday nights for a small fee that will increase, I can help you have this knowledge. Buy my book. Get my seminar. And this, this goes on all the time. And people buy it. And sometimes Christians buy into that. Oh, did you hear what Oprah was saying? Said people who profess to be Christians, even some pastors. There were self-proclaimed apostles and these Ephesian believers, they tested them, they reviewed them, then they renounced them and rejected them and said, you gotta get out of here. Take your message and go. It's a false message. You're not an apostle. You're not an eyewitness of the risen Christ. You haven't been sent by him. You're an imposter like Sceva over there and his boys. They reviled the work of the Nicolaitans. We see that here in, in verse 6. They couldn't bear with those who are evil. They hated the sin of the Nicolaitans. Now note this. They didn't hate the Nicolaitans. They hated the sin, the works, the false practices of the Nicolaitans. Irenaeus wrote that Nicholas, back in Acts chapter 6, was one of the first seven who served the Hellenistic widows. And he records that it may be that this group is connected to him because in time, one of the seven defected. He apostatized. He left the faith and people followed him. And it may be this group. The name Nicholas was often an honorary title bestowed upon a victor as conqueror of the people, Nicholas. So the Nicolaitans were either erring on the side of liberty you can do whatever you want. Or on the side of legalism, lording over others in the church. Clement of Alexandria said it this way of this group of people, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Which, side note here, ladies, You'll go through the chapter that the men went through this coming Saturday. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, that's the opposite of self-indulgence. 
more about me, more about my opinions, more about what I want. That's these people, the Nicolaitans and the Ephesian church. We're like, no, not in here. So, so far, if you're an Ephesian believer, you're like, that's right. We fight for the truth and we fight against evil and we work hard. And Jesus then brings a rebuke to them in verse four. He says, but there's a serious problem that you have. He says, nah, but I have this against you. There's a problem here, Ephesians. And he gives an accusation here and he says, you have lost your first love. That's a problem. Jesus lovingly and firmly rebuked them for losing or abandoning their first love. Let's just think about this for a moment. What do you think about most? If your mind just shifts into neutral, what are you thinking about? It's what you love. If a conversation involves you, where do you take the conversation? It's what you love. If you're hanging out with my wife, she's going to be showing you something of dogs, little dogs. She loves dogs. Look at this little puppy dog. What you talk about, it's what you love. What you do, it's what you love. And you'll sacrifice. Come on now. It's fall. Sports are going. It's miserable. Rain. Freezing cold. Have you seen the guys? No shirts, middle of winter in Green Bay with the big G on their chest, like, yeah, that's what I love, you know? Nobody's making them do that. It's what they love. And we'll always do what we love. And now it traces back to these individuals lost their first love their love for Jesus, devotion to Christ. It so often characterizes a new believer, someone who comes to faith in Christ and they realize I was on the road to hell and someone told me about Jesus and I repented of my sin. I stopped excusing it and I admitted it. And then he forgave me. And he just didn't forgive me and sit me on the side and say, now watch all these you know, wonderful people over here. He brought me into his family and he made me a joint heir with himself. And I'm going to spend all eternity, not in hell where I deserve, but with Jesus in heaven and serving and worshiping him. And that fuel, that reality, that change of heart brings about a change in life. And then time goes on. And sometimes older believers can squelch new believers like, yeah, calm down there, sonny, you know, calm down, you'll see pour water on the fire instead of saying thank you Lord for another brand new believer in the body screaming like little infant babies do and we get to raise this one up why do relationships struggle and sometimes separate isn't it this issue right here most of the time if not almost all of the time, people marry because they love one another. And what happens in those relationships? Somehow we forget the person that we fell in love with 
And somehow that person just isn't meeting all my standards. Somehow that person isn't fulfilling all of my needs. And suddenly we're legalistic to them. Do all my expectations and then I will love you instead of because I love you, I will love you and serve you and serve you and serve you. And I will get to know you for the rest of my life. When we lose our first love, then going to work, tasks around the house, they become this, working hard. You see me working over here? You see me doing what I'm doing? I'm working hard. And what are you doing? You get that? This is a family. And this is what happens when we lose our first love. We're going through the motions. We're doing all the obligations, but it's not grounded and rooted in a heart of love. And therefore, it's polluted. They were maintaining separation, but they were neglecting adoration. Loved ones, labor is never a substitute for love. You can't have love without the works that follow it up, but labor is never a substitute for love. The Lord is not pleased with the actions of our hands, the works of our lives, without the central attention of our heart, our affection. Purity is not a substitute for passion. It's not good enough to simply go through the motions as a husband or a wife and say, well, but I've been faithful to you. You know, you should be blessed. Paul David Tripp, he shares that. Like he told his wife, you know, there's a lot of ladies in the church that would be happy with me married to me. And she said, yeah, I'm not one of them. <laughs> what? In our relationships as believers, we must have both purity and passion from a love, a love of Christ. So then Jesus doesn't leave them there suspended. He gives them a prescription for revival, and this is in verse 5. Okay, so praise, but you have a pro I have a problem with you. Here's my prescription. If you go to the doctor and they say you have a problem, you have a medical problem, there's something wrong, don't you want them to say, so what do we do? What's the way forward? What does Jesus demand from his church? He offers to them a welcome and a warning. His invitation was simple. He says, first of all, remember. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, literally, keep on remembering and remembering and remembering. Keep on remembering, making Christ the central focal point point of our lives is to walk worthy. When Paul wrote some 35 or 40 years before to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 1.15, he said, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I keep on remembering you in my prayers. Rem remembering you. And Jesus says, remember. Remember, remember. Remember your first love? Remember Jesus? Remember? Then what's the next step? Repent. 
It's a change of mind through confession of sin to the Lord. The biblical repentance is a visual aid. I was headed this way. I was on my own road, and then Jesus saved me, and I'm exactly going the other way. It's a 180-degree turn. It's a change of mind. It's a change of thought. It's a change of heart. It's a change of behavior. Everything changes. It's not just, repentance is not just, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. A slight variation. Repentance is, I was wrong and I need to do the opposite. It's complete. He says, repent. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what repentance is. Have you repented of your sins? Have you come before the Lord and owned your wrongdoing? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. One sin is hell. But the gift of God is Jesus Christ. Remember, repent, and then he says, and return. Do you see the welcome that he gives? It's like the righteous father of Luke 15, that he has been waiting. He's been waiting for that change from his son in the pig pen in a far country, and he's been waiting for him. And he doesn't leave him doing penance on the outside of the family. And then there's that older brother at home. I was here. I was doing all the things. And I was laboring. And I was separated. And I was all this and fighting. And I committed to purity and truth and doctrine. And you never did this for me. Jesus was using that to speak of all the legalistic, the Pharisees in Judaism. Return. Jesus didn't want them just sitting in the penalty box. He's like, hey, remember, repent. And return. Go back and do what you did at the beginning, only this time, and again, let's do that from a heart of love. It's a restoration of fellowship. All these things that are integral to a believer's life, our prayer time, our Bible reading, our meditation on the Lord, our serving out of obedience, our worship, but it's all to be motivated by love. And do you realize that I can't speak this in a message, whether it be right here or on a video, and change anybody's heart? God has to do that. I can't change your heart. You can't change my heart. But God can. And he does. If we lose our first love, then we start to find lesser things that become greater things. And disputes and arguments over nothings begin to rule the day and rule our hearts. And Jesus says to them, here's what I'm doing. I'm inviting you back. Remember, repent, and return. And then he does one of these. You remember as a child growing up and your mom or your dad or your grandpa or your grandma said, Hey, do this or else. And depending on the character of that individual, whether that was just an empty saying or had some teeth to it, you're like, oh, I better pay attention here. And Jesus does this. And Jesus does not lie. 
He doesn't do the one, two, three. Oh, next time. When Jesus says he's God, he cannot lie. When we do that to our children, we lie to them. We're giving them the impression that it doesn't matter what authority says. Jesus says, or else, if you don't remember, repent, and return, I will put your light out. You'll be removed. Sometimes when you put a candle out and you don't want that wick to keep smoking in the room, what do you do? Lick your fingers? That's what Jesus is telling them. If you don't listen to me and repent, remember, repent, and return, then about 2,000 years from now, there will be a guy in a city from a pulpit showing pictures of a city that there's no light, there's no gospel presence. It's all archaeology and digs and artifacts in ruins. And that's what you find there today. That's what Ephesus is today. Isn't it easy for us, you know, the great U.S. of A, Americans? Do we learn anything from history? That once great city is reduced to ruins. So then there's the conclusion. In the conclusion to this letter to the church at Ephesus, there's a gracious promise from the Lord Jesus He gives a divine command, a divine command with a guarantee. He says this, he says, listen. Do you have ears to hear? Listen up, listen to the Spirit. Do you have ears? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a a favorite saying of Jesus used when he was on earth teaching. Parable of the soils, Matthew 13. He who has ears, let him hear. And there were undoubtedly people in the crowd what what is he saying i don't know what he means what does he mean what does he mean by that i don't know what he's saying anyway where are we gonna eat do you realize that happens everywhere when the word is preached and people are like well that was an interesting message now what's for lunch do you have ears to hear that's what jesus is saying And notice how he broadens this so that all of the churches including our church today He's writing this and he's speaking this to the churches. This isn't just an issue in Ephesus. This is an issue wherever you go where there are people who name the name of Christ. We can all be guilty of forgetting, departing, or doing whatever we do because it's just our job and our task instead of love. And if I'm serving because I love Jesus... What exactly is going to offend me? Think about that. What will offend you? What will sidetrack you if you are motivated by the love of Christ? How deep? How wide? How far? How high? The love of my Savior. The love of Christ. When do we say, I've I've just done too much? Let me invest more into everything temporal. This message is for every individual in the church, 
And this message is for all the churches. This is message is for every single person that I'm looking at this morning. If you name the name of Christ, or if you repent and trust in him today, and you're brought into discipleship and into resurrection life, this is for you. And this is for us. And I can preach this message in any nation that a plane touches down with me in. Alan F. Johnson says it this way, each congregation is responsible as a congregation for its individual members and for its leaders. Each leader and each individual believer is at the same time fully responsible for himself and for the congregation. You realize what he is saying? You have an individual responsibility and you will stand before the Lord one day and give an account to that. And we as a congregation, we have a responsibility to one another. So what should never be said in the body of Christ, that's not my job. Oh, I don't do that, fill in the blank. Lord, would you have me to serve in this way? I will serve you however possible, however I can serve you. That's the environment of love. And then Jesus says, now let me, let me give you a promise, a guaranteed promise. To the one who conquers, you will eat of the tree of life in paradise. This is a reward. This isn't because we deserve it. It's not because we earn it. This is grace. This is working out our salvation knowing that he says there is a guarantee that you have as you bear fruit in your life. This reward belongs to the overcomer, to the conqueror. The Greek word, I like this word, nakao, right? It's actually where Nike, overcomer, just do it. Nakao, it literally means to subdue. It's the idea that when the Roman conqueror would come back into Rome with the procession and he would bring the general or the foreign leader, the king, and he would bring them before the emperor and there would be the whole massive entourage. And he would bring them and he would place them down and then he, for the glory of Rome and the emperor, would put his foot on the neck of the conquered foe. Subdued for the glory of Rome. And that's the imagery here. To the one who conquers, he will eat not of the glory of Rome, because where's that now? It's gone. Of the tree of life in paradise. The overcomer is the one who perseveres in the face of trials, living in obedience and holiness to the Lord Jesus. The overcomer is not the spiritually elite. It's the faithful follower of Christ who seeks him, loves him, and obeys him. Does that describe you? Who perseveres? The reward will be given by Christ. This is a whole that then that general would come up and be awarded, or the athlete at the end of the victorious game would be given an award by the most important person there. It's Jesus a promise of heaven, a promise of paradise restored. The, here we are in Revelation, and this is linking all the way back to Genesis where paradise was lost, where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of that tree. 
And here we are back, and Jesus is saying, oh, there will be reward, and this tree will be for you. You'll eat of that tree, regained because of the grace of God through the blood of Christ, blessed with abundant eternal life. May we look to our soon coming reward and not neglect, listen to me, our first love. Our first love. John 3.16 will come on the screen. Will you read this with me out loud? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the love of God. It's the love of God. And John says in 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. Have you lost your first love? Are you in danger of losing your first love? Don't be one who's content to sit by and watch everybody else serve the Lord. But let this message, if you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches through a broken individual, what is your next step? To serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the greatest love, our first love. Will you take that step right now, today, in this moment? As the praise team comes, let's all stand. Whatever it is that in your heart, in your life, needs to be made right with the Lord, deal with that now. Make it a priority. Don't put it off. But remember, repent, and return. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I thank you that you see, you know our works, you know everything that we think, everything that we do, and you don't throw us away. You didn't discard this church. You commended them, and then you called them in love to repentance, to holiness, and back to love. God, would you do that by your spirit today? For every single person under the sound of my voice, God, would you give them that love? You have loved us with an everlasting love. And so forgive us, Lord, for not loving the way you have loved us. And will you awaken in us again, do the work in us again, so that the testimony comes from this body of believers. They are filled with grace and love and mercy and truth. And it is all for the glory of Jesus, Lord, in whose name we pray. And all the church said, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.